0: I'm going to invite you now to turn to the back middle portion of your worship guides where you will find the scripture on which the sermon is based. Um, Allison's going to be reading for us Luke chapter 6 verses 1 through 11. Uh, Let me just orient us a a wee bit where we are in Luke 6. We've been slowly, progressively working our our way from Luke chapter 1 through to the end of Luke. Should be finished in the next couple of years, probably. We'll take you know periodic breaks for breathers. But the Gospel according to Luke is a carefully researched first-century document which documents the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. It uses uh, various eyewitness accounts that were uh, existing in the time of Luke's writing, as well as some written accounts uh, that were around. And, and this gospel, this Good News according to Luke, was compiled. And distributed to the churches sometime around 63 AD or thereabout. Luke actually gives a purpose statement in Luke chapter 1 for why he is undertaking uh, this letter, this this, uh, writing to uh, his readers. He wants both the ancient readers, his modern readers, to have certainty concerning the things they've been taught. The truth that's been expressed about who Jesus is and what he has come to do, he wants people to have certainty regarding that. He wants their faith to be built, to be established, to be strengthened, The word gospel that uh, the early fathers attached to Luke's writing, it means good news. And Luke is writing good news to his readers. He wants them to know that to undo sin and all the deadly consequences of sin, God himself entered into our world. And he did so by sending his own son, Jesus. And through faith in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, sin and death can be overcome. This is good news to us. And so in Luke chapter six, uh, Jesus has begun his public ministry. He's out, he's teaching, he's doing some some miracles, some healings, but we're in the very early days of Jesus's public ministry. He has a few followers, uh, not a ton, but his reputation is slowly growing. Allison.
1: Luke 6, 1 to 11. On a Sabbath, while he was going through the grain fields, his disciples plucked and ate some heads of grain, rubbing them in their hands. But some of the Pharisees said, Why are you doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath? And Jesus answered them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry, he and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and took and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priests to eat, and also gave it to those with him? And he said to them, The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. On another Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching, and a man was there whose right hand was withered, and the scribes and the Pharisees watched him to see whether he would heal on the Sabbath, so that they might find a reason to accuse him. But he knew their thoughts, and he said to the man with the withered hand, Come and stand here. And he rose and stood there, and Jesus said to them, I ask you, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life? or just destroy it. And after looking around at them all, he said to him, stretch out your hand. And he did so, and his hand was restored. But they were filled with fury and discussed with one another what they might do to Jesus. This is the word of the Lord.
0: Thanks be to God. Let me pray for us again. Father in heaven, thank you for gathering us, for giving us this incredible gift, uh, this, this uh early record of what Jesus has done for us and for our salvation. Pray that through the reading of your word, through the preaching of your word, that you would build our faith, that we would have certainty concerning the things that we've been taught. We pray that in Christ's name. Amen. The Sabbath day, the Sabbath day uh, written about here in Luke chapter six is a day set apart in every seven uh, from the very creation that God gave to his people to devote to both worship and to rest. That's what the Sabbath is. It was enshrined in the Ten Commandments, uh, the law that God gave to his people, how the rescued people of Israel were to live in front of him. The fourth commandment reads like this in Exodus 20 Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day of the Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter. Your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. The word Sabbath, it comes from the Hebrew word Shabbat, and essentially it means to cease. That's all what Sabbath means, to to cease, to stop. And so as the fourth commandment tells us, this was the day where work was forbidden. We were simply to rest and to worship. The Sabbath, along with a few other things like circumcision and dietary restrictions, From that point on to today is some of the most clear distinguishing marks of the people of Israel, this outward sign that this is a people set apart for God alone. The Sabbath has always been taken incredibly seriously, um, and it extends to areas that might surprise us. So if you remember from Easter, we were reading about how uh, Jesus's body hadn't really been shown the traditional signs of affection after he died because he died right before the Sabbath. And so the anointing oils, the spices that was typically given to the dead wasn't given to Jesus because the Sabbath was upon them. And so the people who who loved Jesus and wanted to care for him, even in his death, um, they said, we've got to wait until the Sabbath is done. We can't can't bring the spices yet because the Sabbath is beginning. And so when we get to Luke chapter six, and it appears to the Pharisees that Jesus is breaking the Sabbath, this is a big deal. It's, It's very important what's going on here. Uh, this is high stakes. The Pharisees, you see in Luke chapter six, they get right on Jesus's case. Like they don't give him any space. (laughs) Hey, you are not supposed to be doing what you're doing on the Sabbath. You're working. You are not obeying God. Who do you think you are? But here's the problem. The Pharisees don't know who they're talking to. They don't know who Jesus is. If they knew who they, they were talking to, they would listen to Jesus instead of talking down to him. Uh, who is it that the Pharisees are talking to about Sabbath regulations? Who is it that they're trying to correct for supposed Sabbath breaking? If you look down at verse 5, Jesus describes to the Pharisees who he is. He says, the son of man is the Lord of the Sabbath. The Lord of the Sabbath. This is actually only the second time so far in Luke's gospel that Jesus has referred to himself as the son of man. This is actually Jesus' favorite self-referent title for himself. Jesus is saying... I am not a mere Sabbath observer or participant. I am the Lord of the Sabbath. And that Greek word for Lord, kurios, it means master or ruler or the one who has authority. It's often used to describe God himself and his lordly supernatural rule over all things. The Pharisees, to their credit, I mean, they're highly educated, uh, well-respected religious scholars, and so they, they might be considered high-ranking managers of the Sabbath or supervisors of the Sabbath, but one title they couldn't claim for themselves is that they are Lord of the Sabbath. Jesus is. That's who he is. Jesus being Lord of the Sabbath is meant to change the way we understand the Sabbath, the way that we operate on the Sabbath. Because Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath, it gives this day of rest a particular shape and tone, which is very different from the way that the the Pharisees wanted to give shape and tone to to the Sabbath. Who Jesus is as Lord of the Sabbath, it it means something to us. It is meant to change us, to change us on a heart level. And in our text, we're going to see that it does so in three ways. So this is the outline. Part one, Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath. So understand the Sabbath biblically. Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath, so understand the Sabbath biblically. I don't know if you know, but it's somewhat contested in the church, this very question. Do Christians even have to keep the Sabbath? Is this still a requirement for followers of Jesus? Uh, let me refer to the Ten Commandments series that we already went through. I'm kidding. Not a lot of you guys were here for that. I'm looking around. But uh, we, we landed on the affirmative on that. yes. The weekly practice of Sabbath rest on the Lord's day is still a requirement for God's people. It is how rescued people live by taking one day off in the week to worship and to rest. Far from abrogating or canceling the Sabbath for Christians, the New Testament, uh, throughout the New Testament, and Jesus here in particular, reinforces and restores the Sabbath, uh, shows and demonstrates how the Sabbath is properly practiced. But as you and I know, as we can read here in Luke chapter 6, the Sabbath in our time and in Jesus' time is often mangled pretty severely. It's distorted. It's easily misunderstood or abused. And so the task for us, the task that Jesus gives to us in Luke 6, is to understand the Sabbath or the Lord's day biblically. If we want to understand the Sabbath, if we really want to understand anything that's in the scriptures, uh, we have to actually go to the scriptures, I'll tell you what I mean by this. The Pharisees say that the grain snacking that the, uh, the disciples are involved in here, they're going and they're, they're plucking uh, heads of grain, they're rubbing it to remove the husk, and they're kind of popping it in their mouth as a little snack. They're saying, what you're doing is not lawful, that is work. And so they're saying, God has condemned your actions by the law. You are a Sabbath breaker. The Pharisees are saying, we got you. You're, you're Sabbath breakers. Uh, You're doing what must not be done. And the question for us and for the disciples is, is that true? Does the fourth commandment actually uh, teach that snacking on grain while you're walking, this is similar to probably like walking along a path and plucking berries and and eating them. Is that a work that is condemned by God? It's a good question. Maybe maybe a bigger question than that is, how do we actually settle questions like that? We can sit and think about it for a little while. Um, Really, what should Christians do when they're trying to settle any question they have about the Bible? Some, some command that's not very clear, some nuance that we don't quite understand that there might be differing uh, opinions on. How do we figure out? Do we flip a coin? Do we just each decide in our own hearts what's best for us, what, what our personal preferences are on the Sabbath and live that way? Look at verse 3. This is classic Jesus. This is Jesus' line. Have you not read... Poses that question to the Pharisees. Have you not read? What Jesus is doing is he points the Pharisees to the Bible. What Jesus is doing here, uh, this has been called the rule of faith. It's, it's a principle in interpreting difficult scripture, interpreting scripture with scripture. That's the rule of faith. Jesus teaches us that if you want to understand something in the Bible better, it's best to use the Bible to interpret the Bible. See, sometimes when we approach scripture, when we we approach commands that we don't quite understand, we try to read it simply with our own eyes or our own conscience or our own background, or we use the eyes of our culture or with our peer group, or maybe there are particular academics or religious scholars uh, that we really like. But when we read the Bible, when we try to figure out problems or disagreements this way, it leads us into all kinds of trouble. And we can see that contemporarily. We can also see it historically. Uh, The Pharisees, in their day, they had a broad uh, body of rabbinic teachings, uh, Jewish scholars who had spent a lot of time reading the scriptures and trying to understand its meaning. Uh, Today, it's called the Talmud. Uh, And and what they did was, when they had a question about the Bible, they would consult uh, the rabbi's previous interpretations, uh, and that would inform their practice. So when it came to the Sabbath, uh, one author gives us this this example. The rabbi said that tying a knot on the Sabbath was work. And so was prohibited. But the prohibition was much too general. And so it became necessary to state what kinds of knots were prohibited and what kind were not. It was accordingly laid down that allowable knots were those that could be untied with one hand. A woman could tie up the strings of her cap, those of her girdle, the straps of her shoes and sandals. And so she could tie a pail over the well with a girdle, not with a rope. And so there was this attempt by the rabbis to to understand the fourth commandment and other commands like it. And it led to all kinds of interesting winding trails. But what Jesus says here is the best interpreter for the scriptures is the scriptures themselves. Other than going to the Talmud or another body of teachings to try to understand uh, difficulties in the Bible, think of some responses that Jesus might have given to the rabbis at this point. He could have just said, it's not a big deal. Look, look what we're doing. We're just eating a few pieces of grain. <laughs> Grow up, cut us some slack, please. Or he could have said, hey, what I'm doing in my time is none of your business. All right, you pay attention to yourself. I'll pay attention to myself. Or he could have said, yeah, yeah. well, you know, that, that's your opinion, man, but I've got, I've got my own opinions about the Bible. So let's just agree to disagree on this. A couple different options for him. But instead of arguing in any of these ways, referring to the rabbis or looking at his own conscience or, you know, some other source of authority, Jesus argues from the Bible. He wants God's people, he wants the Pharisees to take what the Bible says seriously, to let the Bible decide the case. And so if we look at the case study that that Jesus is going through, it's from 1 Samuel chapter 21. If if you were to go there, you would see a story about how on one Sabbath day, the great King David, who who was lauded and respected by all of the rabbis, he was on the run in the wilderness from King Saul, who wanted to kill him. And uh, David and his men, they ended up in the city of Nob, which is a a city of priests. And the only food that was available, the only food that was on hand, was bread that had been previously used in the temple. This is called the bread of the presence. And this, Jesus notes in the law, is only to be eaten by priests. But David and his men are hungry. There is a case of necessity here. There's real need for food. And so the priests in, in 1 Samuel give the bread to David, and David and his men eat it this is kind of an argument from the lesser than the greater that Jesus is giving. If the Pharisees find no fault in great King David and his men who on the Sabbath ate holy bread, which is only for the priests, why would they find fault in Jesus and his disciples who when hungry on the Sabbath ate the most common of snacks? And the conclusion that Jesus is trying to draw is plain. Of course, it's lawful to have a snack on the Sabbath. That is not a work. The Sabbath was a day for rest from from your normal labor. It wasn't meant to prevent works of necessity like we see here, like eating or preparing a meal. So if Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath, which he is, we have to go to his word to understand the Sabbath. And I wonder if you read the Bible like this, if this is your approach to God's word. Do you read the Bible like God actually has authority over you, that his word is binding on you? Do you say whatever the scriptures teach, that's what I'll submit to. Uh, If I I don't understand something, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to go back into the word and I'm going to let Jesus decide in this case. Or do you say, whatever the Bible says that I already agree with, I'm going to all submit to that. I'll I'll allow myself to submit to that. Or, you know, whatever this person or this podcast says, that's how I'm going to understand the Sabbath. Who Jesus is as Lord of the Sabbath ought to change us. It matters to us. It's meant to humble us and change us. It's meant to correct us, perhaps. Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath, friends. And so we have to understand the Sabbath biblically. And second, we are to practice the Sabbath sincerely. Understand it biblically, practice the Sabbath sincerely. If you look at verse six, we see there is another Sabbath where Jesus and the Pharisees get into it again. This time, the Pharisees are watching to see if Jesus will heal a man on the Sabbath. Along with harvesting your own snacks, uh, they considered uh, healing or perhaps like any kind of medicinal work. Sorry to you residents who are here. uh, They considered that work. And therefore, that kind of thing was forbidden. In verse 7, it really shows what the Pharisees are all about. They watched Jesus so that they might find a reason to accuse him. Uh, The Pharisees are so sure that they understand the Sabbath that they're waiting for Jesus to just, you know, cross any kind of line so that they can enforce it. I want you to imagine for a second that you're in the synagogue and you're witnessing this scene. I think perhaps if you didn't have Luke's perspective or Jesus' perspective, just looking on the outsides, the Pharisees wouldn't seem like that bad of people. They might seem like very serious, very devout folks that you could respect. They appear from outward appearances just to want God's law to be obeyed. Uh, And so they're willing to, even though it's a bit uncomfortable, to call Jesus out. Of course, we do have an inside perspective. We see that Luke sees that their motivation isn't about God's honor, but to accuse and to find fault with Jesus. If you look down at verse 11, at the end of this episode, they're furious with Jesus, uh, and they begin the first steps and and many steps that will lead to Jesus' eventual death. These are men who, though externally appear very religious and devout, inwardly they're filled with bitterness and envy and violence. Their religious practice, such that it is, is not a heart-transforming power. It's not softening them but rather their, their religious performance is becoming a weapon that's being sharpened to use it against other people. They're not trying to keep the Sabbath so they can honor God, and they can live in a relationship with him, but so that they can play moral gotcha with people who are breaking the Sabbath in their perspective. Uh, this is a religion that, again, looks very serious and devout on the outside, but Jesus sees right through this kind of thing. He sees right through it. If you look at verse eight, what's Jesus' response? Uh, he knew their thoughts. This is Jesus, the Lord of the Sabbath, looking past the outward, seeing the inward. Jesus is no mere mortal. Uh, He's not someone who's impressed by your appearances. He is Lord of the Sabbath, and so he knows your heart. And so each of us should be very wary of external religiosity. External religiosity makes secondary issues primary, primary issues, secondary. Uh, In another place in the Gospels, Jesus goes on the attack against the Pharisees' external religion. He notes that they tithe, as in they give to God mint and dill and cumin. They don't only give money, but they, they tithe from their spice rack to God. Yet they've neglected the weightier matters of the law. They neglect justice and mercy and faithfulness. And so Jesus chastises them. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. This is external religiosity something that all of us are tempted towards, latching on to a few secondarily important but externally attractive elements of the faith, while the primary issues, those that God says are deeply and profoundly uh, uh, foundational to the faith, are neglected. Here's an example for us. Uh, attending church, coming here on Sunday, love seeing you all. Going through the movements of our liturgy, uh, standing at the right parts, singing at the right parts, kneeling at the right parts, extending your hands to receive the benediction, This is all good, just as it was good for the Pharisees to tithe and to give to God. But this isn't enough. Unless these good but secondary external actions are tied with personal faith and love for Christ, a commitment to turning away from our sin and living a godly life, these which are essential and primary issues, these external actions, again, as good as they are, are just perfume on a corpse. They're they're lipstick on a pig or, or whatever other image is helpful for... Nail in that home. Friends, you can very easily fool me with external appearances. It's not too hard. But Jesus isn't fooled by how religious you look on the outside. He knows your heart. So you have to be wary of external religion. And so when we practice the Sabbath, which we ought to, we have to practice it sincerely, from the heart, asking God to humble and to help us so that we can obey rightly. This is something that is only by the Spirit, something that we need a lot of help with, something that we can encourage each other with. Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath. And so that means we have to understand the Sabbath biblically, keep the Sabbath sincerely. Third, do good works on the Sabbath regularly. If Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath, then we ought to be doing good works on the Sabbath regularly. If the story of David tells us that works of necessity, like snacking on the go, are permitted on the Sabbath. The story of the man with the withered hand tells us that good works are always permitted on the Sabbath. This is the second of the two stories. Uh, One commentator describes the environment that the Pharisees had created in the first century uh, on the Sabbath, and uh, he writes, one could scarcely move a finger without making the conscience tremble. My mom kind of describes what it was like to grow up in a strict Sabbatarian home. As a child, she would describe Sundays as the worst day of her week, you couldn't run, run, you couldn't jump, you couldn't play, you couldn't shout. You weren't even allowed to sit on the swings, let alone like, get any rocking motions. And so this was just a day of nothing. It seemed like anything and everything was breaking the conscience, breaking, uh, breaking the Sabbath. And the Pharisees had somehow turned a day that was intended by God as a gift to his people, a day for rest and worship, a gift to a weary people, had turned it into a day to crush the conscience and to lay heavy burdens. In Jesus's day, people were afraid to do anything. They were afraid to tie knots in a certain way. Uh, They were afraid of scooping up snacks, lest they displease the Pharisees. And again, remember the Pharisees. They have a very high standing in Israel. They're well-respected. They're externally really impressive. So what they said went very far, carried a lot of weight. But here on the Sabbath, we encounter the story where Jesus encounters a man with a withered hand on the Sabbath in a synagogue, we're not sure how he lost the use of his right hand, his dominant hand, we're assuming, um, whether it was a congenital defect, whether it was a child accident, a workplace accident, something like that, or you know, related to a, a disease. In that time, people worked with their hands for their very livelihood. It was an agrarian society. There weren't a lot of you know, like software programming jobs where you're indoors and, and away from the elements. And so to lose the use of your hand had very, very serious consequences on even your ability to have daily meals. Um, and Jesus in verse eight, again, he's sniffing out. He, he sees the hearts and sees the thoughts of the Pharisees, sees past their externalized religion. And he invites this man with the wither hand forward, he brings him right up to the front uh, of the synagogue. And he, he asked this fateful question. If you look at verse nine, with everyone listening, Jesus said to them, particularly the Pharisees, I ask you, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life? Or to destroy it? What's the answer? Is it permissible to do good works on the Sabbath? Yes. <laughs> We're pretty glad nobody shouted no. Jesus asks the man to stretch out his hand and the man miraculously, finally, fully is able to do just that. Christ has healed him. It's a, it's a miracle. And the question for us then is, friends, how can we keep the Sabbath together? How can we keep the Sabbath in such a way that God is honored? By doing good works on the Sabbath regularly, by caring for those who are in need and seeking their good. The character of the Sabbath is a reflection of the character of the Lord of the Sabbath. When we look at Jesus' practice on the Sabbath, we, we get an image, a picture of how we ought to be keeping it. The Lord of the Sabbath has come on the Sabbath to seek and to save the lost and hurting of our world. And so he calls us to do the same. Caring for those in need, doing good work is a perfect use of your Sabbath. And we tend to think of a day of rest as a day where we get to check out, a day where we get to spend it on ourselves. But Jesus helps us to see that the day of rest is a day to bring rest to others as well. The Sabbath is a day for doing good because Jesus himself did, did good. He's the Lord of the Sabbath and he tells us how we are to do the Sabbath and that involves doing good works. So to summarize, Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath. So understand the Sabbath biblically. Practice the Sabbath sincerely and do good works on the Sabbath regularly. But there's more. Uh, one of the earliest church fathers, a guy named Ambrose, who was the Bishop of Milan, he, he saw in the story of the man with the withered hand uh, a kind of uh, a snapshot, a picture, uh, a very poetic image of the good news of Jesus, the gospel and the history of humanity in a nutshell. I'll kind of paraphrase what Ambrose said. He, he wrote, Adam, our first father, disobeyed God. And reached out with his hand to take the forbidden fruit. And from that day, the hand of all humanity was withered by that evil deed. But because of God's great mercy and love for us, Christ has come. And through Christ's good deed, we are finally restored and healed. Through Christ's death, our death can be put to death. Through Christ's resurrection life, we can live to new life. Friends, we all have hearts that are inclined to all sorts of evil. Sin has withered us. It has is, it is caused a, a cessation of proper function in us. We are no longer able to do the good that we wish we could do. And we end up doing the evil that we wish we wouldn't. And so instead of understanding the Sabbath biblically, which we are called to do, we sit as judges over the Bible and over others. And now we're unable to understand left from right. Uh, we make up our own little odd rules and we judge other people by them. Instead of practicing the Sabbath sincerely, we either ignore it entirely, treat it like any other day, or we practice it only externally. And now we've got hearts that are filled with anger and bitterness. Instead of it being a weekly gift from God, it becomes a burden for us or a burden that we put on others. And instead of doing good works on the Sabbath, bringing rest to those who desperately need it, we treat it as just an any other day where we serve our own needs instead of the needs of others. But the good news that Ambrose preached, the word that is being preached to you today is that Jesus has come to mend us. He has come to bring healing to all the parts of our heart that are withered and diseased and dead and useless. He has come to heal your proud, your bossy, your selfish withered heart, so that on this Sabbath, you can worship and rest finally. The Lord of the Sabbath himself was broken for your sin so that your sin could be broken finally. So now... The Lord of the Sabbath invites you, He invites all of us to come to Him to be healed and enter into the rest and worship that He has prepared for us. So may you today on the Sabbath rest and rejoice in what Christ, the Lord of the Sabbath, has done for you. May, you. may you read the Bible with humility and curiosity and with trust, believing everything that God teaches you and obeying the same. May you have a sincere faith, one whose external image matches the internal. May your life be filled with good works. May you see the needs of those around you and have a heart shaped like Jesus's, seeking the rest of those who have been beaten up by sin and death. And may you entrust your own withered heart to Jesus, who has come to give you Sabbath rest. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your love for your people. Uh, You saw us withered and tired and weary and in your love for us and in your mercy. You didn't condemn us and cast us aside, uh, but you sent your own son to give us life, to give us healing. Father, I pray that you would help us, your people, to enjoy Sabbath rest today on the Lord's day and every week. Thank you for this great gift. Lord, uh, make us wise unto salvation. Uh, Give us the peace that comes from Christ. We ask that in his name. Amen.